spending an hour or two with them. If you can't stand it, then I would recommend not doing it because unfortunately it is actually worse than a marriage because at least in a marriage, you know, you can kind of do some things and, and work, work out a lot more. Um, you can work it out a little bit, a little bit more than partnerships because partnerships normally end in lawsuits and, and or dissolving the entity. And really nobody, nobody wins because, um, you know, you're, you have to dissolve it or whatever have you, right? Because in marriage, you can go to counseling, but I don't really, last time I checked, the last counseling I heard for business, it was uh, lawyers and lawsuits. And, uh, As an operator, I know other investors are romanticizing multifamily investing, and I'm looking to learn from other investors' mistakes. I know you are too, and you found the right place. Welcome to Myers Methods Presents Multifamily Missteps. Hey everybody and welcome to Myers Methods Presents Multifamily Missteps. I'm your host Jerome and today I have Ryan Groney with me today. Ryan, how are things in your neck of the woods? Good. Will you do me a favor and let the listeners know how they can get in touch with you if they want to learn more about connect with you? Yeah, so I can be reached on every social media platform, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, all under my name, Ryan Groney. Um, you can also email me at Ryan Groney, Ryan dot Grony55 at gmail.com. And my last name is spelled G-R-O-E-N-E. Awesome. And so now let's go through your background and tell the listeners how you got to the place where you are. Yeah. So my background is, um, you know, nothing special. I mean, I didn't come from a wealthy family. I mean, I come from, you know, my families are workers. Uh, my dad's a contractor. My mom uh, works in, been with the same company for 30 years. Um, so my background is not, you know, real estate related. I mean, I do have a little bit of that entrepreneurial spirit built into my family a little bit. My dad owns his own business, things like that. Um, and they own a single family house, but, um, I went to college, played baseball in college, uh, got a finance degree out of college, worked, um, for a large insurance company in Cincinnati, Ohio, um, worked in financial analysis and investments, kind of underwriting companies, did that for about five or six years. And then in college, I kind of got introduced to real estate by uh, reading Rich Dad Poor Dad. I read that when I was 20 years old and kind of kind of got that bug. You know, when you then when you start your career, you kind of get sidetracked. And then you're like three, four years into your career, you're like, huh, this is probably not going the way I was thinking. You know, I'm making good money, but I got to be here at 8, whatever, a.m. every day. And if I don't, I get yelled at or I get written up or whatever. I mean, it was a very strict um, business that I worked for and we actually weren't allowed to have facial hair or anything. It was, it was a very old school mentality, but uh, you know, for those of the, I mean, that uh, allowed me to pursue other things a little bit more quickly, allowed me to save up cash to invest. Um, so, I mean, you know, I learned systems processes. Fast forward to that. Um, I, you know, the last two years I've been a full-time mobile home park investor. Um, I used to live in Cleveland, Ohio. And then I also now, now I moved and I live in Charleston, South Carolina. Um, I've owned uh, about 180 units and I've operated about five, five 600 units, um, all mobile home park related, all throughout Ohio, North and South Carolina, and then um, some other states in the Midwest as well. Wow, wow, wow. So how did you get introduced to that asset class? I got introduced into mobile home parks um, kind of by chance. So um, unlike any other 
asset class where, uh, you know, like where normally people start in single families and then they work their way up to owning commercial multifamily. Um, I looked at flipping a mobile home, doing a live-in flip uh, of a mobile home in a nice community. Um, the purchase price on that one um, was about 10 grand and the resale in the communities were about 25 to 30. I didn't end up doing that. I kind of went down the rabbit hole and, and kind of had some discussions with uh, my dad, like who owns these parks, you know, what didn't really know. I knew what a mobile home park was, but didn't really, I'd never lived in one. My cousins, uh, you know, I had some family members that maybe lived in one and I've been around them, but nothing, um, you know, where I kind of knew the, the ins and outs of it. So I started looking at the numbers, um, looking at the opportunities, and this was about five years ago. Um, the opportunities were pretty good at that time and were, and they're still good. Um, but it's, it's the last remaining form of real estate where the, where, more getting destroyed every year than they are building, which is kind of unique in itself. And our demand in, in good areas are really high and we have a limited product. So therefore, in just simple supply and demand, you know, low supply and high demand, you always have a good product. Um, so I kind of looked at the numbers and, and on a dollar basis, they provide the best return for every dollar that you invest. Um, so every dollar that you, invest, that, you, that you earn in income, you're only spending about 30, 40%. Um, of that, so your profit margins are 60 to 70% versus, you know, um, comparatively self-storage might compare to that, but the problem with self-storage is that they can build more. And um, mobile home parks are normally normally insulated because um, during downturns, people from class C and class D apartments move into mobile home parks versus the opposite of, you know, class A and class B apartments. Awesome. So, <clears throat> Talking prior to starting the record, you were telling me you didn't have a specific deal, but you wanted to talk partnership issues. So tell me what's been going on because you've built a really big portfolio. Yeah. So um, at this moment in time, I only own one park. I, um, I'm still, um, you know, help operating other parks that I have with some, some people that I've, that I've worked with in um, Ohio. Um, but as far as my personal investments, um, yeah, so really the last year, year and a half, um, a couple guys, you know, we had, we had bought a couple parks together, um, looked at buying more parks, and then we kind of decided, hey, let's maybe, um, let's make this a little bit more formal. Let's kind of set it up. Um, if we're going to grow, um, you know, buy 500 to 1,000 spaces, um, let's, let's, like, do this. So we, we basically took, you know, all summer. Um, kind of a lot of time, a lot of effort, look at more deals, how to put in the different systems in our business and, and all that different things. Cause when you're, when you're buying one property or one, uh, you know, mobile home park or whatever, right. Um, with, with a couple people, it's, it's just like you deal with that maybe an hour a week, you have a conversation and then it's done. But when you're building a business, right. And you're buying multiple different properties and there's all kinds of different things. Um, uh, it's a lot, it, there's a lot to that. So there's a lot more, um, you spend a lot more time with people, right? So you kind of have to figure out, is this the right match? Is it not? And if it's not, why isn't it? Um, so we kind of went down that route, that, that um, discussion path. And uh, long story short, you know, we just weren't the right fit for building um, a business together. And building a business together is, like I said, a lot different than just buying a park or two. I'm still friends with, um, you know, them. I don't hold any hostilities or anything. I mean, it's, it, was a, it was a growing um uh, you know, experience because I had bought a couple parks, um, I was running them, and they had bought a couple parks as well. So, you know, we, they helped me, I helped them type of thing, right? So, 
as everybody knows, you don't like, I never started with a lot of money in this business. So my first deal, I put my money in, I basically depleted myself and then other deals I've used my experience and time, which I have now because I'm full time. Um, <clears throat> I basically run operations for equity and then I also find deals. That's kind of how I get into deals. And then I also, you know, I'm bringing capital and, and, and things of that nature, but you know, I'm still out here looking for deals and um, looking to grow my portfolio. And I'm by no means um, taking a vacation during this uh, pandemic. What was it that gave you an indication that this wasn't the foundation for a multi-deal partnership? Like what, what happened with your potential partners that made you say this isn't the right move? Yeah. So the more and more, like I kind of thought about it, um, and we had all discussed it. So originally there was five of us, right? So when you're splitting, we were also raising money. So when there's five people involved, that's a lot of hands in the cookie jar and there's too many, too many slices of the pot. Uh, it, it, it's not enough to go around. When you're, when you're taking 100% of um, a business, right? Let's say you buy one deal, 100%. And then if you're raising money, you normally give up a chunk, whether it's 60, 70% of that equity to investors, right? That's pretty normal in the, in the partnership syndication structure. So that's what we were doing. So my slice of the pie was about um, 20% of our, of our partnership. For, and then that was invested into about 30% of a deal. So that was about 5%. So you'd have to big, build a really big portfolio for me to kind of achieve my personal financial goals. And um, after kind of talking with each other and figuring it out, you know, they all had regular jobs and, and I, you know, at the time had another job. It was just, it was too much for everybody that was involved and we were all virtual and um, kind of realized our communication styles and, and kind of work styles probably weren't um, set up to kind of build a business. We all had different skill sets, but, um, you know, we were just at different times in our lives and, and it just, that kind of led into some other discussions and um, that's kind of why we are here, here where we are. So, I mean, there was nothing, um, one thing that I can be like, oh, that's the moment. It's more like a domino effect. And um, you just kind of start like realizing like, hey, this probably isn't for, for me. This probably isn't for us. And um, we should probably go our separate ways. How, so the new way that you're structuring your deals, how are you making it more beneficial for you if you're still not bringing capital? So um, the same structure that I would do in the past um, I structure it to where I get a percentage of the equity for basically running operations, which is quote unquote sweat equity, right? That's, that's basically what I'm doing. I'm, I'm the, the sweat equity of, of the equation. So that's basically how I'm structuring the deals. It may be um, I'm taking 10, 25, 50% of a deal. It just depends on the, how large the deal is. Now I'm not, I may bring some capital to the deal. I may also bring an investor in and, you know, can have them contribute and then I run the deal, right? So these are all active joint ventures. They're not, I don't, um, to this date, I have not syndicated. So it's more of a, they're an active investor, family, friends, um, and it's not really quote unquote passive as far as like true limited partnership where they're doing nothing and they're just collecting a check every month. They might be uh, the money piece, but they're also maybe, um, you know, maybe they have, they, they have some relationships with a contractor or something else, right? They, they do have to be active, um, you know, and we keep meeting minutes and, and all that stuff. So, the, so if somebody came to me, right, and they said, hey, 
I have some money, we've known each other for a little while and I have this deal, I'll run the deal and you put your money in, you know, I would structure it probably, you know, depending on the size of the deal, anywhere from, like I said, they get 50, 60% and then I get, you know, 20 to 40% of the deal. Now, at the end of the day, they do have the final say if they own that much. Um, so to kind of limit my downside, I pick and choose um, a little bit more. I'm a lot more picky than what I used to be, right? I'm not just um, as hungry. I mean, I'm still hungry to do deals, but I'm not just doing deals with anybody. Um, I have to know them a little bit longer and kind of, you know, get to know them on a personal level and also in a business relationship and, and kind of vet them out before I just kind of take anybody's money. because. As you can see, you know, um, it can not always end the way that you plan. Um, not that it was negative in any way. You know, it was, it was a great learning experience. And, um, you know, and also, you know, I cashed out my partnerships with those two and um, is what it is. And it's a, it's a great learning experience for future endeavors. What's up, guys? It's your host, Jerome. I just want to let you know we launched Myers Methods in the fall of 2019 with the ambition to inspire a new breed of multifamily investor. If you are interested in getting into multifamily or scaling your current business, hop over to our website at MyersMethods.com to grab your free four-step guide on how to get the ball rolling in multifamily. Now, let's get back to the episode. So, what? Do you have some type of checklist or prescription on how you vet your deals or your partner, your potential partners today? Because I imagine because you have the experience that you have, a lot of people are working with you. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really, um, you know, what, what is your goal, right? So first of all, we all talk about like, what's the, so investing with, with somebody else's money, what's the timeline? I mean, it's just the same as any other um, investment, right? What's the timeline of your money that you're putting in? Can you, are you okay with holding it for 10 years or do you need it back in a year, right? So figuring out those capital needs is number one, in my opinion. And then number two, um, kind of figuring out what their return objectives are. Um, and then also at the same time, kind of once we get past that, seeing if we're the right fit for, for their money, um, figuring it out if um, we're the right, right, um, you know, from a personal level, right? Do we get along? How's your communication structure? Um, do we like each other? I mean, you don't always have to like your business partner, but you know, if you hate them, it's going to make a, it a lot uh, harder than um, just kind of getting to know them, right? And, and liking them, spending an hour or two with them. If you can't stand it, then I would recommend not doing it because, unfortunately, it is actually worse than a marriage because at least in a marriage you know you can kind of do some things and, and work work out a lot more um you can work it out a little bit a little bit more than partnerships because partnerships normally end in lawsuits and and or dissolving the entity and really nobody nobody wins because um you know you're you have to dissolve it or whatever have you right because in marriage you can go to counseling but i don't really last time i checked the last counseling i heard for business it was uh, lawyers and lawsuits, and um, it's 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 actually more serious than a marriage, unfortunately. So, I mean, it's a parallelism that you use mm -hmm, mm -hmm. all the time. Um, you know, you you don't want to get married after a one night stand because uh, people go meet somebody at an education course or connect with them on LinkedIn, and now they're ready to jump in bed. And you know, you're tying your finances together um, for the parks that you you you're doing and have done are they recourse or non-recourse loans so uh we kind of have uh 
couple ways that we structure the debt side of our investments. Um, one, we, we always, if the option's available, we look for seller financing, right? Which, which 95% of the time it's non-recourse. It's actually, it could be state dependent. Like in North Carolina where you live and I own a park, um, we have a park that's seller financed and it's non-recourse. All seller financing deals in uh, North Carolina by the law, um, this is not legal advice, please ask your attorney, but um, it's, there's non-recourse to seller financing deals. So, I mean, you still lose your down payment, but there's non-recourse to us. Um, some of the deals are structured with local banks. Um, so those are normally recourse. And then we're working on a few larger deals that um, are agency debt, which is Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and those are non-recourse. But those still, when people hear non-recourse, they think, oh, well, I can just sign on the dotted line. And, and forget about it. No, there's still bad boy car routes. And what that basically means is you could potentially be personally liable still for that debt. Um, normally they're not going to come after you. They're just going to take the asset and then go against that. But in, in full recourse deals, you're personally liable for, for everything, right? So like your house, your car, I mean, any cash you have that can be seized by the bank. Um, most of the time they just take the property back, but really just depends on the bank and and um, during 08 i don't really think anybody that i know of um actually like the bank called it and, and went after different assets but and again i don't know everybody and i don't know every deal i mean heck i was in high school when that happened so um that was i was uh on my way to college i was thinking about you know drinking beers playing baseball and and whatever you know whatever we were doing on the weekend when we were playing baseball. So, I mean, it was a different time and um, I wish I had been an investor then because I, I'm sure I would have learned a, a hell of a lot um, and it would have probably helped me now, but I can only read about it and um, study it. I mean, then and talk with other investors that live through it. So when you get Fannie or Freddie dead on a mobile home park, is that, are they just lending on the land or will they lend on the homes too? No, so normally they're only lending on the land. So our business model really plays into that because a lot of lenders don't like mobile homes as far as a rental because it's um, it's seen as you know personal property, right? They think it can just be driven away, which is which is not the case. Um, yeah, they have axles and wheels, but they're not just going to be towed away by somebody's F one fifty, right? And if it is, that F one fifty's getting pulled out the back end of it. But anyways, yeah, so they normally only lend on the land and what that land is producing, right? So what's the lot rent and then what's the expenses with associated with that park? And then that's kind of the basis for their value. They may include a little bit of the park-owned home income, which park-owned homes are homes that the park owns and they rent them out like apartments. So um, they may consider that a little bit, but most of the time um, they don't like those. and. We don't either. Now, will I discriminate against a an investment? No, I've owned a park that was all park-owned homes, and the plan is to sell them off for cash, give them away, or like do some type of owner financing where we finance it, and they own the home in a relatively short time. Wow. So, Ryan, what words of wisdom do you have for our listeners? I would say um, read as much as you can, talk with as many people as you can, and then at the end of the day, don't be scared by, um, you know, thinking that real estate is something complicated because it's not. I, I owned zero of anything, right? I didn't own a home. I didn't even own my car at the time when I bought a mobile home park. I was renting. 
I went from zero to 75 units on my first purchase. Now I did that with partners and um, I had studied a lot and talked to a lot of people and looked at a lot of deals. But really, um, if your plan is just to buy one deal, start looking at one deal a day, call one real estate agent, call one broker, um, call one owner. I mean, you're gonna learn a lot more um, if you're in it than if you're not in it. And especially if you work another job, like a nine to five and then you've got kids, your time is limited and I've been there. Um, so I mean, you have to carve out a lot of time to kind of set aside if you wanna do deals. But um, my words of wisdom is just get started and kind of don't look back. So. You know, that's super interesting. Um, you're operator, you're asset manager, and you don't feel like investing is complicated. I know you deal with some things that you scratch your head on. So why do you believe that it's not complicated? It's complicated, but it's not. Um, real estate is really, unfortunately, it's, it's not, um, how do I say this? A, a very unintelligent person can make a lot of money in real estate. And unlike if you're buying businesses or buying stocks, you normally have to be pretty educated and, and, and pretty well versed in high finance in order to, to do well um, in you know, private equity and hedge funds and, and investment banking, right? Versus real estate, it's very simple. You have your income, you have your rents, and you maybe have 10 to 15 expenses on a monthly basis. And, and it's, the property is there, so it's either producing income or it's not. Um, and the expenses associated with it are not complicated. It's normally utilities, um, you know, different, different bills. I mean, the, the ebbs and flows, your, your inflow of revenue is very simple. The unit's occupied or it's not occupied. And how do I get it occupied, right? Now, I'm not saying it's not complicated. It is complicated, but on comparatively to other forms of investing, um, it's very simple because you have real property, um, you can learn or you can find somebody that knows structural issues with buildings, knows how to do certain things with water and sewer lines, knows um, all these different things. Um, there's a reason there's only one Warren Buffett, but, there's, but comparatively, there's a reason there's a lot more real estate millionaires versus stock millionaires, right? I mean, I mean generally saying um, Warren Buffett buys businesses, not stocks, but he, in order to achieve that kind of uh, wealth by just buying businesses is pretty hard. And the guys that are doing it are, you know, private equity investment bankers. And those guys, um, I come from that, that background and those guys are really way smarter than me. Um, that's kind of why, you know, I like real estate probably because it also, it's, it's also just simpler to, it's also easier. I mean, as far as a, um, you know, there's a reason they don't call it, or they call it passive income, right? I mean, it, it, you still have to work for it, but, you know, tenant calls, I can call them back later. It's not urgent. I mean, some things are urgent, but most of the time, my day is not very urgent. So. Well, Ryan, I appreciate you coming on and sharing with our listeners. Uh, Tell the next time, man. Stay safe. Talk to you soon. Yeah, appreciate it. Talk soon. You made it to this juncture, so you really love what we shared on this episode of Myers Methods Presents Multifamily Missteps. Do us a favor. Give us a five-star rating. Give us a review and share this with somebody who's interested in multifamily investing. Until the next time, the pack is with you.